Welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend, Chabruta and Gordon. Our daf today, Masach of Abakama, Daf Kofiud Gimel, page 113. Well, the, before we get to our second mission of the last parak, uh, we continue to go through details about exactly how the court process works. And the Gemara gives us a little bit of more discussion about uh, excommunication, right? Like when somebody becomes excommunicated because they didn't come to the Beit Din as they were asked to do. Amarava, Sarava says, Haman Wudina. So when we have a case of a person who uh, there's a bill of excommunication was written for because they did not come to court, Ad Daati Wudina Lo Right? The law is, is that until he comes to court, we don't tear it up for him. In other words, it's not enough for him to basically say, I'm going to come to court. He actually has to show up to court in order for this decree of excommunication to become void. Right. And also, if this if this excommunication bill was written because he didn't obey the verdict of the court, right, until he obeys it, we don't tear it up for him. So in other words, we basically don't take like a verbal assurance. He has to actually follow through on the action that's required of him. Now, the Gemara doesn't like the last point here, and it says, Velohi, it's not so. Once he says, I will obey, then actually we do tear it up. So there seems to be a machlokas or a difference of opinion here with the Gemara, right? That when it talks about an appearance in court, that we don't tear up that decree until he actually gets there. But if it's obeying, it's enough for him to say that he will obey. And it's interesting that there isn't any further discussion about this in the Gemara. Then the Gemara goes on to say, at what point, you know, does the person, does the court start to actually excommunicate a person for not listening uh, to to their, uh, you know, order to come to the court? Amar Rechisa, Rechisa says, So we tell the person to come to court on Monday, the following Thursday and the following Monday. Uh, so we make an appointment and an appointment and another appointment. And then the next day, so it would be like on a Tuesday, basically, because we're doing Monday, Thursday, Monday, then we write this, you know, notice of excommunication, okay? Um, the Gemara now tells a story to illustrate this. Rav Asi equally Bey Rav Kahana. So Rav Asi was visiting Rav Kahana. Chaza hahi itata. So he saw that a certain woman that Rav Kahana had summoned to the court in the evening. And in the morning, he wrote her this, you know, bill of excommunication because she didn't come. Amarle Ravasi says to Rav Kahana, Don't you agree with what Rav Kisa said? Right, that we summon a person to appear on Monday, Thursday, and Monday, and only then do we excommunicate them. Amar Leis, Rav Kahana says to him, These were applies to a man, right, who sometimes is going to be out of town. So, I don't know, some good misogynistic Torah here, I guess, on this topic. <laughs> In other words, the idea being, why would a woman be traveling? Of course she's there, of course she's available. But a man, it's possible that maybe he wasn't there. But in the case of a woman, since she's in town and doesn't come, more red than he, she is considered to be in obviously in contempt of court. Now, it's interesting that we're shown him look at this and they actually say, if you can prove that the man was actually in town, 
then actually he also could be excommunicated uh, right away. So I found that to be interesting, but I don't know. This distinction between the man and the woman, it's not sitting so great with me, but that's what Rav Kahana says. From there, the Gemara goes on to actually list times where we don't make a person actually have to go to court. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but, you know, Nissan, Tishrei, right? Because the idea is that there's a lot of, you know, the grain is harvested in Nissan or Tishrei. You know, there's other harvesting. That's what some of the say. I would also think it's just, it's the Hagim time. People are very, very uh, busy there. Also the, the like Arab Chag, the ease of a festival or on Friday. Um, so that's also just sort of like interesting to look at as well are all these days that we don't actually have a person um, come, just pay attention to that uh, to that as well. Also would be somebody who's involved with a wedding. So sort of some other circumstances would say that like, it would sort of prevent that we recognize somebody genuinely right. is busy. Okay, so now we're gonna go to a new Mishnah. And do you have anything to add to any, any of that? Anything about the woman distinction there? No, no, I wonder how much we should be careful with it though. Meaning maybe it's just, an example. Yeah, it may just be an example. I don't know. Okay. So the mission begins as follows. Ain portin lo mi tevata mochsin velo mi kishel gabain veinotli mehem staka. So since in the previous Mishnah we were talking about, you know, what happens with a stolen good that gets consumed, right? Somebody steals something and they feed it to his children. The children don't have to pay it back. So here the idea is we're talking about exchanging coins and you're not allowed to exchange larger coins from smaller coins from a, you know, from a customs collector or a tax collector or take tzedakah from them because we basically assume that there's stolen funds in there, that they somehow got those funds illegally and they stole them from people. But you can take money from the collector's house directly or for money he has with him in the market because if it's like his own personal wallet, right? It's not his collector uh, wallet or purse or whatever he puts that money in, that you can take from because the idea is is that uh, we don't we assume that that's not stolen. So the same way that we were discussing whether or not you can use, you know, uh, you know, stolen funds, or and the first mission was sort of examples where you don't have to return it, right? Here is, here, what we worry about here is that a tax collector is basically being told by the government, you know, that they can get the money any way that they can, and that it would basically be you taking what's stolen property. Um, but again, if it's directly from their house or from their own personal wallet, we don't have that same concern. Yeah, I'm not sure it's exactly those cases, but I mean, certainly they become very interesting. This idea, first of all, to begin with, we're talking about, well, as we shift towards the Ahmed Bed, I'm still on the bottom of Ahmed Aleph, but we, first of all, we enter into jurisdiction, let's say, between Jews and non Jews. And we discovered, I'm telling all our co listeners, co learners, your data, that, um, we discovered a real interesting discussion, you know, a, a quiet discussion between the different editions of the Gemara, where if you look at the Tzuras Adaf, the classic Vilna Shas, um, the parsing, you know, it's not, you don't have vocalization, you don't have punctuation, and the words just follow as they do. And Yordana, your Gemara had the words that I'm about to start with as the end of the previous discussion, and my Gemara has them as the beginning of the upcoming one, because I use, uh, you're, you use, I'm not sure, but I use the Koran 
edition, which has, they've put in vocalization. So sometimes it's very helpful. Sometimes it's a little distracting. I think I often find it distracting. But in a time like this, I feel like, well, who's right? And the answer is, well, it's Gemara. So there's always going to be multiple interpretations of the text that doesn't include punctuation to begin with. But it gets really complicated. So I'm going to explain it um, the way my Gemara presents it. But you all should know that these words, I'm going to now explain what the words are. It says, Rav Ashi Amar B'mochis Goy. That Rav Ashi is talking about the Mishnah's discussion about a non-Jewish custom collector. And then it goes on, and we're about to, I'm about to read the, the Breita that follows it. I have those words as the introduction to the case of the Breita that follows it. Your Dana, if I understand correctly, you have those words as the closing point on the previous case, which we're not going to discuss. Correct. So, which is shocking. It's just shocking because usually, I mean, it's one thing to say that the Rishonim, the commentaries, have differences of readings of the different texts, that's for sure. But this is the kind of thing that I think is fairly standardized in understanding by those who, you know, are experts in learning Gemara to begin with. So it's very interesting to me that the different editions, uh, in the, the modern editions that provide vocalization or provide a translation and so on, actually break it down in a different way. In any case, we're certainly talking about, there is a case here with the the... Jews and non-Jews, right? And they are the case of the Breita, Titania, Yisrael Vagoy, Shabauladin, Jew and non-Jew that come to the court for judgment. And the halacha is very, or the Breita here is very direct. If you can um, justify or vindicate the Jew, you know, under this Jewish law, make sure to vindicate him. And then more low and say to the non-Jew, um, so this is our law, right? Maybe that's what you say. You say to the non-Jew, you know, he's vindicated because this is the way our law works. I wonder what the Hague would think of that. Sorry. Okay. And then we have here... You, you, had, to, you had to say it. <laughs> I had to. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But let me break it down, right? The case says specifically... If it works under Jewish law to to vindicate him, do so, and then tell the non-Jew, yes, that's what we. This is our law. But but if he could be vindicated under non-Jewish law, this is your law, right? Then you can say to the non-Jew, this is your law. Meaning, either way, you're looking to get the Jew off. Basically, is the you know, very clearly stated agenda of the court. And if it's not possible to vindicate the Jew under either system of the law, then what you have to do is come at it like Bakifin in a twisted way, in a circuitous way, so that you can come up with some kind of justification to vindicate the Jew, which sounds so much like a perversion of justice when you read it off, you know, on the face of it, um, but let's understand. We're going to delve a little further to understand. So that's Rabbi, Rabbi Shemal's opinion. Rabbi Kiva says a little bit differently. Rabbi Kiva Omer, Ain ba'in alav ba'kifin mipnei kiddush Hashem. Rabbi Kiva says, don't do that. Don't come at this secure, circuitously because that you, you want to make sure that you've got a kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of God's name, meaning that all of the Jews are going to be dealing in an upright way. And the moment you start dealing ba'kifin in some kinds of 
you know, finagling to get it to work the way you want it to work, then you're already desecrating the name of the Jewish people and thereby God. Um, I want to just note that I, it's, it's kind of impossible to lose sight of it even in the time of the Gemara. And it's certainly, you know, the kind of thing that is maybe a little more intelligible for us nowadays than it might have been, you know, uh, seven months ago, six months ago, three years ago, right? This idea that there can be a perversion of justice if everybody is functioning on the up and up, meaning that you can show up in court and the, why are they trying to get the Jew off when it sounds like that's a twisted way to handle it? You want to, you don't you want to handle things in an honest, upfront kind of way? And if the court is automatically prejudiced against the Jew, then I have a better understanding of why the Jewish court would want to do whatever they could to get the Jew off. Because, you know, if there's going to be trumped up charges or whatever, and he's going to be in trouble, then then I understand also Rabbi Huda's position of even Ba'akifin, even if it's, you know, in a twisty way. So I want to say like Tsarist Russia or Nazi Germany. And I hope to say that, you know, it's not really relevant nowadays, except I fear that it might be or coming soon. Um, I don't, I'm not trying to be political here. I'm talking about like literally this is historically a thing that we know that Jews in, you know, were, Jews were prejudged, shall we say, before their case ever really came before the court. Um, I mean, so, can I just like, this is, you read this today and it's literally like, just like, I mean, the phrase, you know, right? There's nothing new under the sun. So it's like, it's comforting in a way, but it's totally scary and depressing also. I was really happy with the newness under the sun that didn't allow for this kind of shenanigan. I mean, I'm not happy that we can recognize that this is back or have this kind of personal understanding of the Gemara, which isn't that nice to have new insight. Yes, yes, it is. But I would be happy if we had remained in the dark on this one. Um, the Gemara goes on, of course, right? So what happens then is that even according to Rabbi Kiva, right, his whole reason that he said the court should not, you know, finagle in order to vindicate the Jew, his concern is Kiddush Hashem, meaning if there were a way to do that without blemishing the name of God, if there were no issue of Kiddush Hashem in that particular case, then coming at it circuitously might really be fine. Meaning the claim here is that you're allowed to deceive the Gentile. Oh, this is our law. Oh, this is your law, right? Like as if he isn't fully aware or presumably he really wasn't fully aware of all of the parameters or the ins and outs of the of the judgment. And the halacha here does not ever say, no, no, you should be honest even with a non-Jew in this particular case. And again, we're speaking specifically about court. Um, so I don't know how far the implication will go elsewhere, but it says, you know, you are allowed to deceive the non-Jew unless you're in, at risk, according to Rabbi Akiva, unless you're at risk of, of Kiddush Hashem being a problem. Okay, the Gemara now is going to challenge this. So you don't have, you know, as much as this sounds kind of shocking and disturbing, at least to me, the Gemara, of course, says, wait, what? And here's the wait, what? The Gezel Goy Mishari. Who said you're allowed to steal from a non-Jew? Which is, I think, a fair question. Which is mean he's coming from a place called Zifrin but the Nikud, the vocalization changes. So it says like this, Rabbi Shimon says that Rabbi Kiva taught about this when he came from Zifrin, 
How do we know that stealing from a non-Jew is prohibited? And I would think that should be an obvious thing, but okay, let's go with it. So there's a verse in Vayikra, Leviticus chapter 25, where the case is about a Jew who has been sold as a slave to a non-Jew, which I think was also probably not as rare of a case as we might want it to have been. And then after he was sold, he could be redeemed. Meaning once he's been sold, you could be he could be redeemed. Shalom I'm now at the top of Amabet. Shalom Meaning the whole idea is you should not take that slave by force. You know, they want to make sure that they're not taking by force. So we have to come up with a way, <coughs> excuse me, for him to leave the non-Jews um domain. So it's possible to think that he would deceive that you deceive him in order he would deceive the non-Jew in order to free the Jew. Rather, you should the the verse, this is a citation of the verse from, from Baikra, you should calculate it out with the person who, who bought him to begin with, meaning do this on the up and up. He should be, and the Gemara explains not just to calculate it, but to be precise in your financial dealings with the non-Jew who purchased the Hebrew slave, meaning we're still talking about trying to redeem the Hebrew slave for sure. But the issue is not at any cost, not in the way to steal from a non-Jew. Like that's not, the Gemara here is not accepting that as a possibility. I'm a Rav Yosef, low kasha. Rav, Rav Yosef has a solution, right? He says it's not difficult. This case, ha bagoy, ha bagir toshav. We're talking about the difference between a court case where deceiving the Gentile, the non-Jew, is allowed because we're talking about he's, he's a non-Jew, like he's just a fully, fully not Jewish, and and that's that. You're allowed to. Whereas if you're talking about a ger toshav, a ger toshav is a non-Jew, but one who lives in the land of Israel and who, obser- who observes the Noachide laws, right? The Shevah Mitzvot B'nei Noach, the seven Noachide laws. That person is already like in the umbrella of the Jewish people. And you're not going to deceive a, one of the a ger toshav, right? So that seems to be the distinction. Like there are gradations or, you know, more ever-growing circles of how close you are to the Jewish people. And if you're really a far-gone non-Jew out in that outer circle, the Jewish people, or in this particular Gemara, Rav Yosef is less concerned about de- deceiving you. Amr Abai, Abai says to Rav Yosef, Vahatra vayu hadadik tive. So Abai says, how can you draw this distinction between the non-Jew and the Ger Toshav? Meaning, they're written next to each other. They're written next to each other, meaning in the Torah. Like that halacha is going to apply to both of them equally. What are you separating here? It says specifically that, you know, the case says not to you, but to the non Jew, right? One who violates the prohibitions of Shemitah of the sabbatical year is going to be punished by having to end up sending a, selling himself as a slave because. You know, it's a matter of of debt and having to to carry the financial responsibility. It says you're going to sell yourself, not to you, but to a stranger. You're going to sell yourself to a non-Jew. Not to a Jewish convert, but to a non-Jew who dwells amongst the Jewish people. It says explicitly to sell to to the non-Jew who is a who dwells amongst you. And then the verse goes on, right? And the verse goes on to try to, you know, get into the case of, as I say, these external circles, the difference between a ger toshav 
someone who once dwells amongst the Jewish people, or what about people who are already engaged in idolatry, which is already not the seven mitzvot b'nei Noach, the seven Noachide laws, but further afield. All of this, again, is still trying to reckon, grapple with these contradictory positions. So Rava has a new solution. We love when Rava comes along, right? Ella Amarava Lokashet Khan don't think about it as a difference between the non-Jew and a different non-Jew and a different non-Jew. Pay attention to the case. That we're talking about a case of robbery against a non-Jew, where we're talking about the original case, right, which is a real robbery. And to do any shenanigans, finagling to get the Jew off would be considered a desecration of the name of God. Whereas if you're talking about you're talking about canceling a loan, canceling a loan that's owed to a non-Jew is a little bit easier because it doesn't actually involve taking any money, right? Nobody took any technically, nobody technically took any money. So it seems to be a little bit of an easier kind of situation. Abai comes back to Rava, doesn't like it so much. Rava goes back, right? I mean, we've got, it's standard Gemara. The Gemara goes on for the whole of Amabet. You know, it's a really important back and forth discussion, but I'm going to stop here just to, you know, just to give us the entryway into this uh, um, really sensitive issue between of relations between Jews and non-Jews. And I think that this is one of those cases, more so than usual, where I would say your historical backdrop is going to make a big difference as to whether this is more acceptable or less acceptable in terms of how we understand this. Because, because we're talking about robbing non-Jews, which sounds insane and unethical and how could you possibly allow that and that's one line of thinking in the Gemara and then the other line of thinking is like well if the Jews are already um, you know held accountable for something that they haven't done to begin with then there's more shenanigans that they may need to pull to make things actually be on the straight and narrow because the as I say the historical backdrop if Jews are considered guilty before they ever even come to the court what else are they going to do um I, I think that it really makes a difference, right? Based on what is going on around you, the learner of this Gemara, at the time that, you know, how you come to the text is going to be very different. How bothersome it is, how plausible it is, based on your own knowledge of how Jews and non-Jews interact. Oh, 100%. But I think it's really, from a, even just from a purely historical point of view, this is a super interesting Gemara to learn. Right, right. I just prefer it in the history and not in the present, as I said. Yes. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hajim website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Time Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.